we're in the middle of a series on David, and for the last couple of weeks, as we go through the series on David, David's stock has been rising. You with me? So each and every week, it seems like David, uh, he, he experiences success, he demonstrates faithfulness towards God, he shows courage, he shows bravery, last week he showed mercy, and so it seems like David is just taking on more and more influence, responsibility, ownership, and success in the kingdom of God. He's receiving more favor from God. And so what we're going to talk about this morning, this is peak David. David is at the height of his career as a king, as an individual, as a follower of God. But unfortunately, things are about to come crashing down in about two minutes. And so we're about to read a story about how David, and really more broadly, how do mighty men fall? And this is a topic that really our culture is obsessed with, right? How do the rich and famous, how do politicians, how do actors, how do celebrities, how do they fall? And and there's maybe something about human nature where we just love these stories, these instances of how people with influence actually experience a demise. I mean, you even see it on the interstate, right? When you're on the interstate and there's there's an accident, there's a wreck, there might just be a car pulled over with a fender bender intuitively, innately, we just pump the brakes, slow down, because we have to see firsthand what is the damage. And we like to do this in the lives of people. There's something that, that, that just draws us in our human nature to seeing how people wreck their lives, and that's what David is about to experience. But here's the thing, even though we click links to these stories, watch movies of these stories, the only way that we can enjoy these stories of how mighty men, mighty women fall is we have to operate under one dangerous false assumption. And you want to know what that is? The only way we can enjoy these stories is if we believe what about ourselves? Y'all interact with me a little bit. It could never happen to me. Am I right? But this story is sobering because David's not just anybody. Scripture actually refers to David as, as what? A man after God's own heart. And so there's a sobering reality of this story, and we should think to ourselves, if this could happen to David, it could what? It could happen to me. And so we're going to read about David's demise. We're going to read about his fall. Just to give you a little bit of context, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 11. And where we pick up, David's about 50 years old, and like I said earlier, this is the pinnacle of David's career. This is peak David, militarily, politically, and personally. And at the height of heights, this is where David meets his demise. So we're going to start in verse 1, and here's, we're going to take it on a lot of Scripture this morning. I'm just going to read a couple verses, and then we're going to try to unpack it, explain it. But point number one, we're going to look at David's fall. David's fall. we start with verses 1 and 2. It says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with them, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from a roof a woman bathing, and that woman was very beautiful. So under the heading of David's fall, we're going to look at a couple of things that precipitate David's eventual fall, adultery and murder. And the first point is that David fails to take responsibility. David does not take responsibility. 
The passage begins, it says, in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle. Now here's what you understand. In our culture, we have different seasons. We've got literal seasons, but we also have during the summer, for all of our college grads, it's wedding season, right? Each and every weekend, there's a different shower, there's a different ceremony. We're constantly throwing on that same suit, that same tie, and going from ceremony to ceremony. All right, it's Georgia, it's the fall is coming, it's about to be what? Football season, right? Then we hit the holiday season, but we have different cultural seasons. When the ancient Near East, they actually had war season. And war oftentimes took place in the spring, because if you're a soldier, if a warrior, you know it's just too cold in the winter to swing a sword, right? And most of these guys were farmers as well, so you couldn't fight during the fall because that's harvest season. So more often than not, they would actually go to battle during the spring. But here's what's really interesting. Where is David in the spring? He's where? He's in his palace. And more specifically, he's not in his throne room. What's he doing in his palace? He's what? He's on the couch. That's exactly right. He's enjoying a nice nap. Now, let's not be too hard on David. Actually, in his culture, it was very hot So during the afternoon, at at, at peak sun, during the hottest time of the day, they would take like a siesta. They'd take a break. So that was culturally accepted. But it's really interesting. David seems to awake at what time? Late in the afternoon. In fact, the sun was probably setting. So David is enjoying a nice, long nap. And then he wakes up. And the passage says that he's walking. And in the original language, David's not just strolling up and down on the roof of his palace. This is actually pacing. He's anxious. There's unrest. He's disturbed. He's moving back and forth. And the reason is, is because he's demonstrating complacency and passivity with the God-given roles that God has given him. Keep in mind, this is the same David who previously in the evenings would write out the Psalms. In fact, if you read in Psalm 119, David says this. He says, O Lord, I remember your name in the night. Later in Psalm 119, he says, At midnight, I would rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. So just think about David, the previous sermons where we've described David's life. In the past, David was a warrior. He was a leader, an initiator, a soldier. In the past, in the evening, he would remember, he would meditate, and he would praise the Lord. And today, in this passage, we find David resting. His life is marked by complacency and passivity. You've probably heard the expression before, Rome didn't fall in a day. Well, David didn't fall in a day. There's a great song lyric that says this, that people never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. And this is where the slow fade begins with David as he abdicates responsibility in the roles that God has given him. I think one verse is really helpful to keep in mind is Galatians 5.16. It says this, When you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So when I walk by the Spirit, I don't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In other words, the best way for me to defeat temptation and to fight sin is to simply what? Focus on following the Lord. Be faithful to my responsibilities. So brothers and sisters, the best way for David to fight sin was simply to be a faithful king. The best way for David to avoid sexual temptation was to what? 
simply to go to war. And so in the same way, you've been given roles just like David. You might not be the king of an actual kingdom, but like David, you are a king or queen. You have a role or responsibility in this communion, community. There is something that you have dominion over. So the first question you've got to ask yourself are, what are the battles that I'm not fighting? Where has God given me a role? Where am I not being responsible? Where do I need to be more faithful in my work, in my home, in relationships, or maybe in school? And also, just like David, you, you, you have been given a role as a king or queen, but you've also been given a role as a son or daughter of God. So you've got to ask yourself, Am I being faithful to pursue the Lord? Am I being committed and disciplined to spend time in the Word and prayer? Am I serving in the local church? Maybe you need to take an opportunity and repent of the idols of comfort and complacency and how you've gone through the motions of your spiritual life. So first and foremost, we see that David fails to take responsibility both as a king but also as a son of God. Point number two... We see this, David doesn't flee from sexual temptation. Picking up in verse 3. It says this, David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David, while he's on his roof, he looks out, and he sees a woman bathing, and this woman is Bathsheba. And the sin is not not necessarily in David seeing Bathsheba, but in how he responds to Bathsheba. We see that David sins and inquires for her. And this is in direct violation to Scripture, because 1 Corinthians 6 instructs us, how are we to deal with sexual temptation? We don't look at it. We don't stare at it. We don't play with it. We flee from it. 1 Corinthians 6 says we're called to flee from sexual immorality. Well, what does it mean to flee? The word flee means sprint. It means get away. It means get the heck out. For you kids, this is when you run really fast in a game of tag. Right? Somebody's chasing me, and I'm sprinting as hard as I get, as I can. This is the language that Scripture uses in how we deal with sexual temptation. Let me just make one quick little point right here. Here's what we see, is that success actually increases the amount of temptation we experience. Do you see this? And one of the reasons I've already mentioned is that very often when we reach the pinnacle of our career or our profession, is we're prone to complacency and overconfidence. But you've also probably heard the expression before that it's lonely at the top. And so when you experience success, very often that leads to isolation and a lack of accountability. And you're surrounded by yes men and people who won't call you out. But finally, when you, when you start experiencing success and you receive more influence and more responsibility, that's attractive to the opposite sex. And so we see when you experience success, it doesn't decrease and diminish temptation. It actually increases it. And and no doubt, Bathsheba is a part of the equation. But what is the passage focused on? Is it focused on Bathsheba? No, it's focused on David. 
Because we actually read three consecutive action verbs. And they all are directed at David. It says that David sent for her. David took her. And David lay with her. Well, who is the her? Who is the Bathsheba that David is sleeping with? We don't learn much about Bathsheba, but we learn a lot about her family tree. We learn a lot about her father and her husband. Well, first off, Bathsheba's father is a man named Eliam. If you actually read other passages in the Old Testament, you will find out that Eliam was an advisor for David. So he was a mentor, he was a trusted counselor. And then we find out that Bathsheba is married to a man named who? Uriah. And in another portion of Scripture, we find out that Uriah was actually a member of David's 30 mighty men. So Uriah was a Navy SEAL. He was secret service. He was a man that was so devoted to David that he would regularly sacrifice his life for him. But on top of that, there's one other important observation. Where, does, where, where is Bathsheba taking her bath? Right next to the palace, meaning they're what? They're next door neighbors, okay? And when you're the king of Israel, guess what you get to do? You get one amazing privilege. You get to pick your next door neighbors, right? Anybody got any problems with next door neighbors? Right, unfortunately, you're not a king. But back in those days, because you had all power, all authority, you got to choose who lives next door to you. You got to make sure, you know, you didn't have a crazy cat lady or, you know, who somebody's smoking weed every day, right? You get to pick your nice, neat, friendly neighbors. And that's what David got to do as well. And so more than likely, when David says, who is this woman? All right, he's playing dumb. He's playing coy. This was a woman whose father was his trusted advisor. This was a woman who was married to a man who was more than likely one of his best friends. And fellow warriors. And here's what's really interesting about this passage. David never refers to Bathsheba by name. Not one time. He refuses to call her by name. He, when, when he reaches out to her, he calls her woman. He calls her daughter. She's referred to as wife and her. It's all very impersonal language. So what does that tell you about this relationship? Is this love? Is this covenant? Is this marital fidelity? Absolutely not. This is lust, not love. Do you understand what's going on here? This is a booty call. Right? This is David pulling out his iPhone and texting, you up, question mark. Right? He's horny. He wants to get some. That's what David is going through. And just so you know, this isn't David's first foray into sexual immorality. Because we also know this. Was David married to one woman? No, prior to this point, commentators have to guess at the amount of wives that David has because there's a verse that says, when David, when David uh, returned to Jerusalem, he took many wives. Most people make the guess that David already had seven wives. And guess what? If being a king was the family business for David and his family, sexual immorality was the family sin. Because later on, David has a son named Solomon. And Solomon takes it to the next level. And even though he's referred to, the, to as the wisest man on earth, Solomon made a very foolish decision. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. But the point is this. And here's what you've got to ask yourself. Am I fleeing sexual temptation? 
Am I running from it? Am I getting away from it or am I just entertaining it? Am I looking at it? Am I staring at it on my phone, on my television? Maybe in flirtatious conversation or relationships? Or am I like David? Moving on to point number three. So, so far David fails to take responsibility. David fails to flee from sexual temptation. Point number three is this. David fails to confess his sin. Let's read verse 6 through 13. It says this, David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of his king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you, not, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and all Israel and Judah dwell in Booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. So I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife. As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David comes up with a plan. And actually at one point Uriah, David's best friend, the man that he has lied to, he's cheated on. David has an amazing opportunity simply right then, right there to what? Confess his sin. David can come clean. If we confess our sin to one another, we will be healed. But instead of confessing his son, his sin, David, what? He tries to cover it up. He tries to conceal it. He manipulates the situation. And he tries to get Uriah and Bathsheba to sleep together. Because he thinks if they'll sleep together, then maybe, just maybe, Uriah will think that the baby is his. And so do you see what's going on in the heart of David? You can almost witness and experience his heart hardening and darkening. With each and every verse, there seems to be increasing wickedness. And in fact, ironically, the only character in this story that seems to be governed by any sense of duty and honor is not David, but who? It's Uriah. It's exactly right. But we see the deception of sin. David really believes in this moment that no one will ever find out as he tries to cover his tracks. But here's what we see about confessing sin. No doubt, you've been in a situation where you do something disobedient, rebellious, sinful, or selfish, and you know, I've got to confess it. But everything within your flesh tells you, I don't want to confess it. I don't want to come clean. I don't want to be open. The point is this, very often when we want to confess the least, we need to confess the most. Do you see that? When you want to confess the least is when you need to confess the most. So my question for you is, like David, is there unconfessed sin in your life? Is there something that you've done, something that you've said, something that you've experienced, that you know 
that you don't want to confess, but you know you need to confess. Brothers and sisters, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. So David fails to confess his sin. Let's move on to point number four, and this is a big chunk of scripture right here. We're going to read verses 14 through 26. But David had failed to develop truthful relationships. Point number four, David had failed to develop truthful relationships. Verse 14 says this, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew where, where there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news of the fighting. And he extru- instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king... Then if the king anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tebez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let the matter displease you. For the sword devours, now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So here's what we see. David sends Uriah back to the front lines and he gives Uriah a note. And Uriah is essentially carrying his own death note. And that note makes it to Joab. Joab is the commander of David's army. And do you see what Joab does? Joab takes the, takes the plan one step farther. He actually improves on David's plan. David's plan only called for Uriah to die. But what does Joab do? He says, I can improve this. I can make it a little bit better. I can cover our tracks in a more effective way. And so now several men end up dying. But you see the complicity not only of Joab but his servants. Instead of stopping David... Instead of pleading with David, instead of rebuking or exhorting David, they're complicit and they're guilty. And once again, this directly violates the will of God because Hebrews 3.13 says this, We should exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what's going on in David's heart. You can see it slowly but surely. He is being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So no doubt we have a personal responsibility to confess our sin. But do you see what Hebrews 3.13 is saying? There's also a communal aspect. If someone else in this community, if someone else in my family, if someone else in this church, 
is being deceptive or rebellious or disobedient, I have an obligation, I have a responsibility to exhort, encourage, come alongside and confront them. And so we see, we, we, we see where it ends. When David finally receives the news that Uriah dies, his best friend, one of his mighty men, his next door neighbor, do you see how David responds? He doesn't weep. He's stoic. He's emotionless. And the only statement he utters is this, the sword devours one as well as another. Do you understand what David is saying right here? He's saying, look, if you go to battle, people die. Do you see how calloused, how cold, how darkened his heart is? He's essentially saying this, I guess it happens. It's just the way of life. It's the way things go. At this point, David is completely numb. He's hardened. So here's my question for you. Brothers, sisters, do you have men, do you have women in your life who will call you out? Do you have relationships with people who will exhort you each and every day? Do you have people who will say the hard truths to you when you drift away? Let's see where the chapter ends. Picking up in verse 26. It says this, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So do you see how David rebounds? David marries Bathsheba. So what goes from a PR nightmare is completely salvaged. In fact, if you were a citizen of Jerusalem... And you woke up the next day, more than likely, if you got your copy of the Jerusalem Journal, what would be on the front page? Something like this. The compassionate King David marries the widow Bathsheba. Do you see the spin game? And what would happen next? A royal wedding. Because ladies, right? What what, what is more exciting and more enjoyable than a royal wedding? So now David marries Bathsheba. But let's not forget that in just one chapter of Scripture, in 2 Samuel 11, David has broken one half of the Ten Commandments. You could actually make the case that David violates every single one of the Ten Commandments. But he undoubtedly breaks Commandments 6 through 10 in just one chapter of Scripture. What is the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. Well, did David murder? Check. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Guilty. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. He stole a wife. Commandment number nine, you shall not, shall not bear false witness or lie. David has been deceptive for months. And then commandment number ten, where it all begins, you shall not covet. So David has violated one entire tablet of the Ten Commandments in just one chapter. But here's the point. It was a slow fade. Because David didn't wake up this morning and think to himself, today is the day. Today is the day I murder my best friend. Today is the day I execute one of my mighty men. I mean, David, David didn't just wake up from his couch, whip out his iPhone, look at his calendar and say, look, looks like I got, I got some adultery scheduled for 8 p.m. You see what I'm saying? His fall was a slow fade. It wasn't premeditated. But do you see how the chapter ends? It's a cliffhanger. 
Because it seems like David has gotten away with it, doesn't it? Nobody knows. And the people who do know are now complicit and every bit as guilty. But what is the final word of the chapter? It says this, What David had done displeased who? It displeased the Lord. And this word displeased, it means evil. It means wicked. And even though until this point, God has been silent, hasn't he? He hasn't said a word. God has been silent, but he's not absent. And so here's the real cliffhanger. What is God going to do? How is the Lord going to handle this situation? Because David has not only violated God's law, he has violated God's heart. He's done a wicked thing. But before we move on to God's response to David, we've got to pause very briefly. Because David's condition is what? It's our condition. It's our condition. Did you know this, brothers and sisters, that we have the exact same problem as David? And so before we consider what God is about to do with David, the question we got to ask ourselves is, what is God going to do with me? In fact, I believe that we actually have a worse problem than David. And here's why. Because when Jesus preaches his longest sermon, Jesus starts talking about murder and adultery. And here's what Christ has to say. He says, look, if you get angry with your brother, you've committed what? Murder. And he says, if you look at someone with lustful intent, you're guilty of what? Adultery. And so you may not own a sword or a gun, but according to Christ, you can commit murder with your words. And you may never visit a massage parlor or a seedy motel, but according to Jesus, you can commit adultery with your eyes. And so in a sense, we are no different than David. This is a room comprised of murderers and adulterers. And so how is God going to deal with David? But more specifically, how is God going to deal with us? So let's move to our second point, and I promise I'll pick up the pace. But we see that David repents. We see that David repents. Now we're in chapter 12. And so what does God do? First off, God sends a friend. He sends a man named David, excuse me, Nathan. And Nathan is a prophet. We don't know exactly when this occurs. Most commentaries suggest this is nine months later. Nine months later. And so Nathan confronts David. And the way he does it is he tells him a story. And the story is about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man steals a lamb from the poor man. And when David hears the story, he gets really angry And then Nathan points at David and he says this in verse 7. Nathan said to David, he says, you are the man. He says, thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add, add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall not depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I'll take your wives before your eyes, and I'll give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun." For you did it in secret, 
but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So we see David repents. Nathan rebukes and David responds with repentance. In fact, David's one statement of repentance is in verse 13. Do you see what David says? This statement is short and sweet. He simply says, I've sinned against the Lord. In Hebrew, this would only be two words. Two words. David says, I've missed the mark. I'm wrong. I'm guilty. This is what true godly sorrow looks like. In Corinthians, Paul actually makes a distinction between worldly and godly sorrow. This is godly sorrow. There's no excuses. There's no pretext. David simply acknowledges his sin. It's short, it's simple, and it's focused on who? On God. And this is why David is described as, as a man after God's own heart. It's not because he was sinless. He definitely wasn't perfect. He didn't always obey. The reason why David is, is regarded after, as a man after God's own heart is because of his repentance. It's not that he always got it right. It's because of what he did when he got it wrong. He repented and he focused on God. But we can also learn something about the way David views sin. Because do you see what David is most broken and repentant about? It's not the murder, it's not the adultery, and it's not the sex. Because David actually viewed these things as symptoms rather than the original disease. And we've already read Psalm 51, but Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance. He writes it nine months later. He writes it after he's rebuked by Nathan. And in one verse, verse 4, David says this, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And David's not referring to Uriah. And he's not referring to Bathsheba. His mind and his heart is focused on God. And here's what David isn't doing. He's not trying to minimize the murder of Uriah. He's not trying to downplay the rape of Bathsheba. But what David is doing is he is maximizing the rejection of God. Because ultimately, this is what makes sin, sin. Are you with me? What makes sin, sin is not primarily offending a person, but offending God. Because have you thought about this? Before David could commit adultery on Bathsheba, he had to what? Could commit adultery on who? On God. And so that's why in Psalm 51, David makes one request. He asks for one thing, and guess what it isn't? He doesn't say, God, just give me another accountability partner. He doesn't say, God, just don't let any more naked women take baths, you know, next door. He doesn't say, God, just give me more self-control. David says, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now, he doesn't say restore my salvation as if he'd lost his salvation. He pleads with God and he says, I need more joy in my salvation. Restore the joy. So what David is acknowledging is that he has forgotten the grace of salvation. He has forgotten the grace of God. And this, 
me make just one little point right here. This is why so often powerful men have affairs. You guys come across any stories recently of powerful men abusing their power and influence by committing affairs? Because here's what happens with powerful men is they start to think to themselves as they've reached the peak of their career, the top of their organization or their business. They start to say this to themselves, nobody knows how hard I've worked. Nobody knows the sacrifices I've made, how I've grinded, how I've worked my tail off. And as they look out into the world, they say, look, I'm entitled to this. I deserve this. I can take this, this woman, this relationship. I deserve this. They begin to believe the hype that they're self-made men, that they work their way to the top, that they are responsible for their success. Do you get what these men are forgetting? They are forgetting grace. They're forgetting grace, and that's ultimately what David forgot. David forgot that all of his life was a result of God's grace, that he was a recipient of God's salvation. That's why he pleads with God. And he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So, David repents. Well, how does God respond? Well, God does two things. First off, God disciplines. God disciplines. Did you pick up on what Nathan says to David? Nathan says this. He says, look, David, you're not going to die. But because of this deed, you have scorned the Lord, and the child who is born to you shall die. Now, it's really interesting. When Nathan rebukes David, he tells a story about what? Is it about adultery? Is it about murder? Is it about rape? No, it's about sheep. And there's a reason for that, because David, prior to becoming a king, was what? Well, he's a shepherd, and he worked with sheep, so maybe Nathan is speaking his language. But ultimately, David is still a shepherd. He is just a shepherd of the kingdom of Israel. But I believe there's another reason, and the reason is this. It's Exodus 22.1. Exodus 22.1 says this, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So why does Nathan tell a story about sheep? Because David's consequence, the discipline that he receives, he doesn't just lose one sheep. Ultimately, he loses what? He loses four sheep. Let me explain. David... Four of David's sons actually die. The first son is the, is the son that Bathsheba and David have, this unnamed infant. The second son is a son named Amnon. This is David's oldest son. Later on, Amnon decides that he is going to rape his sister Tamar. And as a result, Amnon is murdered by his brother Absalom. That leads us to Absalom, son number three. Absalom decides that he's going to overthrow and rebel against his father, David. And during a battle, Joab, this commander that we've already read about, throws a spear through the chest of Absalom. And then finally, when David is on his deathbed, when David is about to die, his son Adonijah is actually murdered by Solomon, his eventual heir. So the point is this. When Nathan says, the sword shall never depart from your home, this is what he means. See, sin splatters. Sin not only affects ourselves, it affects our families, our friends. In this case, it, it affects strangers and even the entire kingdom. It has a present effect 
and a future effect. See, very often when we preach and talk and think about forgiveness, we just assume it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. There's no consequences. There's no effects of my sin, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says you reap what you sow. And you may be a follower of Jesus, and yes, Romans 8.1 is true that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and you may be forgiven, but God will still discipline you when you reject Him. And the reality is there are not natural consequences to our sin. If you drink and jive, you lose your license. If you lie to your spouse, it erodes trust. If you cheat on an exam, you get a zero. We see that there are natural, but also spiritual and supernatural consequences to our sin. We call this divine discipline. And there's a reason why God disciplines us when we sin. I believe there's three reasons. God's trying to show us and demonstrate to us that sin is evil, that it's serious. Second, God desires to humble and sanctify forgiven sinners. So God's not trying to penalize us, he's trying to purify us. And third, do you know that the scripture actually says that God's discipline is actually a sign of his love? Why does God discipline David? Because he loves him. Hebrews 12, 6 says this, God disciplines those he loves. So yes, is David forgiven? He is. But his sin still impacts, there are still consequences for his sin. But there's one final word. Yes, God disciplines, but he also redeems and forgives. This is our last point. And to make this final point, we're actually going to get out of the Old Testament. We're going to read Matthew 1. Matthew 1, because it's really interesting. We see God is tough on sin, but he's also tender. We see God's justice, but we're about to see his mercy. We see that God forgives, but by no means He clears the guilty. If you read Matthew 1, Matthew 1 starts off with a genealogy, which is a long list of names. And the genealogy starts with Abraham, and it ends with Jesus. And it's a bunch of Jews, it's a bunch of Hebrews. And the author, Matthew, is trying to trace how Jesus comes from a long line of Israelites. And so the line starts with Abraham, and if you read verse 6, it says this, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Well, here's the point. Jesus was born through what? Through David's sin. And ultimately, Bathsheba is who? She is the great, great grandmother of Jesus Christ. What does this tell me? It tells me that there's always hope. That no situation... No relationship is too far gone. In fact, even though David names his son Solomon, God says, I'm going to call him what? I'm going to call you Jedediah. That sounds like a NASCAR driver, bluegrass band. But Jedediah means what? It means loved. It means loved. And so this genealogy tells us what? That God can redeem any sin, any tragedy, any disaster in you or your family. And that God in His sovereignty and His providence, He can work in and through even our sin. You ever thought about that? We talk a lot in this church about God's sovereignty and His providence. How He's in control of everything. Well, that control includes our sin and our selfishness. Because here's the reality. If God wasn't in control of human sin, 
there wouldn't be much for him to control. Am I right? So God can redeem. The final point is this. God forgives. Because here's the question we've got to answer. How could Nathan say to David, you shall not die? You ever thought about that? How could Nathan say to David, a murderer and an adulterer, you shall not die? Because David understood, and Nathan understood, the punishment for his sin. It's written in Leviticus 20.10. It says this, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, sounds eerily specific, doesn't it? The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So David in his adultery has committed what? He's committed a capital offense. And you know how they carried out the punishment? Here's what they would do. They would get the adulteress, Bathsheba in this situation, and they would drag her to the steps of her father's home. And on those steps, they would stone her to death. And then they would take the man, the adulterer, in this case, David, and they would take him to a stable or a farm, and they would plunge him knee-deep, kneeling in a pile of manure. And then they would wrap a towel around his neck, and two men would pull And they would constrict that towel till eventually that man would suffocate and would fall face first into the manure. And there's a reason they did it this way. Because the towel wouldn't leave any fingerprints and any human marks on their neck. In other words, it symbolized divine justice being meted out. It demonstrated the wickedness and the displeasure of this sin. And we've said this before, that forgiveness is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. And every time we sin, and in David's sin, it not only affects his self, his friends, his family, his kingdom, and his community, but there's one person I failed to mention. See, every time we sin, it not only affects our family and friends, but it also affects who? God. It's God. That's why the chapter concludes with this, that what David had done displeased or was wicked to the Lord. And so what was the consequence for David's sin? What was the fruit of his sin? What punishment did he receive? It was death to the son of David. Death to the son of David. And so how could Nathan say to David, you shall not die because a son of David died in his place. But here's the thing, who is the son of David that was the worthy and satisfactory substitute for David? Well, guess what? It wasn't the infants. And it wasn't Amnon or Absalom or Adonijah. Do you know who the worthy substitute was? Well, it was David's great, 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 great grandson. It was Jesus Christ. Because he is the true son of David. And so, brothers and sisters, in the same way, when God looks at us, how can God say, you shall not die? Because the son of David has died in our place. Because God can also say, my son was your substitute. See, this is the good news of the gospel. Is that just like David, we're all murderers. We're all adulterers. We are guilty of breaking the whole law. And God did something about it. And he didn't just send a friend to tell a story, to exhort us or to rebuke us. He sent his son. He sent the son of David. And the son of David was willing to substitute his life for us. 
He paid. He took the punishment that we deserved. So brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. Is that just like David, we've fallen. We've committed murder. We've committed adultery. And yes, God takes sin seriously. But through the son of David, through Jesus Christ, we can be redeemed and forgiven. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this cautionary tale. Lord, I pray we would receive these words and not simply say, wow, that's crazy. I can't believe that happened to David. But we would be sobered. That we would learn from David. We would take responsibility. We would flee from sexual temptation. We would develop truthful relationships. We'd be vigilant in dealing with temptation. But God, more than that, I pray that we would see and be glad and be thankful for the son of David who died in our place. Lord, we deserve to be choked by your wrath. What we have done is wicked and displeasing to you. But Lord, we thank you that you sent your son to take our place. Lord, I pray that we would not forget grace. That you would restore to us the joy of salvation. And we would lead lives that please you. We praise your name. Amen.